Father, we thank you this evening for our opportunity to come before your holy word. Pray that your word will minister to us in simplicity and in clarity of speech. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit of the instructor that is in the house to teach, to guide, and to lead us into all truth. Amen. Well, good evening, church. Last week, like you all rightly said, we talked on the gifts of the Father from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. And we classify them as service gifts or gifts of service. And just like one of you rightly said, we talked about seven of them. Uh, prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, leadership, mercy, and giving. So God gives gifts to men or women because of, not because of the factor of superiority versus inferiority. Uh, every gift is equal in the eyes of God. It may manifest different than the other. All right, so that's one thing you all have to remember. So in the kingdom of God, no one gift is superior to another or inferior to another. The gift is the same. It's just that it manifests itself in different ways. And I like what one of you said, we are to practice sober thinking. And what does it mean to practice sober thinking? We looked at it in context in Romans chapter 12 that we, are, we all, not some of us, so once you become a believer, all of us have received grace and faith. And last week, I, I, met, I made mention of the fact that one of the broadest definitions in the Bible is the word grace. And the popular definition is unmerited favor, which is correct. But when you look at Romans chapter 12, the context in which the word grace is used is a substitutionary word for, for gifts. So all of us have received a gift. All of us have received faith in addition. So because of that, we are to practice sober thinking. You know, the mindset of you are the only person gifted or anointed. You are the only one God is using. You are the only genuine minister. It's not so Bible. And it's so anti-Christian. You get me? shouldn't think like that. Once upon a time in the Bible, there was a man called Elijah. He, was, he, he lost it for a minute. He, he thought, I'm the only zealous one in the land of Israel doing God's work. God had to check him. He said, dude, I have 7,000, yo. All right? He checked him. Okay? So, uh, th- 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 because he wasn't practicing sober thinking. When you are practicing sober thinking, you take away that form of exclusivity which tends to promote superiority. You know, when, when you try to look at things from an exclusive mindset that I am the only one, it's only this group that belongs to, you know, you make a big mess. Practice sober thinking. It is important for us to be humble and not see ourselves greater than anybody. Very important. And the only concept that can help us to practice that is sober thinking. Amen. So pastors are not more important than the choir. All right? The pastor does a different role. The choir does a different role. No one group is greater or least. God sees all of them the same. The gifts manifest in different ways. The usher is not more important than the parking attendant. All right? One is not greater. One is not the least. They are the same but they are all using their gifts in different ways of manifestation to build forth the church. Amen. So let's try and get that very clear. Amen. In the kingdom of God, there is nothing like superiority versus inferiority. We are all one. We are all equal in the sight of God. Why? Because we have all received grace or a gift. And we've also received faith in addition. Amen. So today we move on to chapter 13 of our book. It's important to note that the book of Romans is divided into two parts, okay? So the first part is the doctrinal or the theological aspect. And the second part of Romans is the practical aspect, all right? So chapters 1 to 11 deals with doctrinal or theological issues, or or not not even theological issue. It's, It's just a doctrinal theological side. Paul takes his time to 
explain the rudimentary aspects of the Christian faith. He goes into the fundamentals of the Christian faith. What makes one a Christian? He explains the, the concepts of Christianity, salvation, righteousness, faith, and the like. And then from chapter 12 to chapter 16, it's the practical aspect of Christianity. All right? So in effect, why do we learn doctrine? We learn doctrine so that it will affect our lifestyle or modify our behavior. When I'm talking about modify, it means change. That's why we sing the song, Great Change Since I Met God. There is a great change since I met God. All right? Great modification since I met God. There has been a great modification since I met God. A modification in your behavior. That's why we study doctrine. All right? So doctrine is not for the head. You don't study doctrine to know things and to know things and to spout it off as knowledge for people to be impressed with that. The reason why you learn doctrine is to affect your heart. Because the Bible says that out of the heart are the issues of life. You see, you practice things because you are doing it from the heart. And anything you tend to do involuntarily is called by the heart. All right. When you commit things to memory, you you don't. I mean, you don't think about it. it. It just flows out of you effortlessly. I mean, when when, when most of us drive, and we can all relate to that. When you started driving, you used to think about it a lot. But at a point, it's not. It just becomes involuntary. You sit down, you know what to do, and all that stuff because you are doing it by the heart. And and, and doctrine is supposed to affect us to a point that we we. Exhibit Christ by the heart. Are you understanding me? So that's why we learn doctrine. We don't learn doctrine for head. Doctrine is not good for head. Doctrine is for here. And, and for us to be able to be practical Christians or for our behavior to reflect that of Christ, it needs be that we are grounded solidly in doctrine or theology. So that's the only place for the- theology or doctrine in the life of a believer. Amen. So with that said, we are looking at Romans chapter 13 today. So we are looking at the second chapter of the second aspect of the book of Romans. It has to do with behavioral or the practical aspect of our Christian faith. And Romans chapter 13 is termed as the Christian's obligation. All right, so there are three obligations there and we will look at them. Number one, the obligation to government. Number two, the obligation to love. And number three, the obligation to walk right. So let's start with verses one to seven and deal with the first obligation. That's towards the government. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that, are, that exist are point, appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for consciousness' sake. I'm sorry, for conscience' sake. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom are due, customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear, Anna to whom Anna. Amen. So you have to understand the background of this. At the time of Paul's writing, the Jews were experiencing or had experienced governors, you know, and who were, you know, the, the, under these governors were very wicked leadership. You know, Pontius Pilate was a very wicked man. Jesus even suffered after, uh, uh, under him. So Pontius Pilate, his record is not only known with how he handled Jesus. Uh, history shows that he was a very wicked man. And then after Pontius Pilate left, Emperor Nero now was the next in, in, in charge. And Emperor Nero was very wicked. 
In fact, Paul died under this governor. You know, Paul died by beheadment. They, they cut off, that's how he died. And the person who ordered Paul's death is Emperor Nero. And Paul writing at that time was under the relationship of Emperor Nero, who was very wicked. Time will not allow me to even tell you some of his most wicked and, and detestable acts. So in light of this, Paul was writing to the Jews who are among the Romans. Because, you know, the, Rom the Romans were a bit mixed people, you know, because Jews were under Roman captivity. So there were pockets of Jews among the Romans. So Paul was addressing the Jews in particular who were not comfortable under this sort of leadership that you have to be submissive to the government of the day. Whether it is your preference or not, you have to be subjected unto them and see them as from God. Even someone like Emperor Nero, who is very wicked, see him as from God because he occupies a place of authority. Um, a Democrat should respect the government if it is a Republican. And a Republican should also respect the government if it is a Democrat. That's it. Amen. Now, we might not agree on, on, on values. We might not agree on principles. We might not believe on certain constitutional rights that we will need to debate and argue with in a, a, a forum, which is allowed. But at the end of the day, what we are not allowed to do is to insult them and to desecrate the office. Are you understanding me? If you have a problem, have a problem with the policies, have a policy with the principles. And I don't think when you have a problem with the principles that the government is issuing at the end of the day is subject to rebellion or is the same as rebellion. I don't believe so. We, we can disagree to agree or we can agree to disagree, uh, whatever be the case. But however, when we are talking about submission here, we are talking about giving the person his reverence and giving the person his due because he stands in the office. Amen. That, that's what is important. I think we saw a typical example here, January, when, you know, um, people went into the office. That was insurrection. That is the height of rebellion. And the Bible doesn't promote that. Whether Republican or Democrat, the Bible doesn't promote that. You, you, just, you just can't do that. You just can't do that. You just can't do that. Go and attack the, 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 the people in Capitol Hill. Go into the office and, and do all that. that it's, it's just not on. If, and if you, are, you call yourself a Christian, you should distance yourself from such an attitude. We can agree to disagree. If I don't like you, I will vote against you. Okay? Or I will debate your policies, but at the end of the day, I'm going to respect the office in which you operate. Because the Bible tells us that we should respect people like that. Amen. And the Bible goes on to say that if we reject the government known as authority, two things happen to us. We are resisting the ordinance of God. And number two, we bring God's judgment on ourselves. So we are not supposed to resist. We have to see them as God's appointed authority. That's why as a Christian, whether your party comes into power, whether you are a Democrat, whether you are blue or you are red or you are purple. <laughs> you know, because one, one, one year you can vote Democrat, one year you can vote uh, um, um, Republican, then maybe you are purple. But either or, whether the, 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 the government is your preference or not, the Bible wants us to respect them. That's it. And the Bible lets us know that if we don't do that, we resist the ordinance of God and we bring judgment of God unto ourselves. There are some Christians, they will say, I'm a Christian till four years. Then they will change from, I'm a Christian to a Democrat. There are some Christians today, they will say, I'm a Christian till four years later. Then they will change. I'm not a Christian, I'm a Republican. Your Christian faith should precede your political party. And it should precede how you behave. Amen. Sometimes in the election, some of the people who can really disappoint me are Christians. But that's another day. Amen. So, the Bible lets us know that leaders are not evil. The Bible says that they are not a terror unto good. They are not a terror. Excuse me. 
verse 4, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For is God's minister to you for good. If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Amen. So the Bible is commending us that leaders are not a terror to good works, but to evil. They, are, they aren't. In the Bible, then, and that's why the Bible commands, that, commands us to respect them. And the Bible lets us know that if we want to be in favor with authority, then we just have to do what is good. And when we do what is good, it will not breed fear. It is possible for a Democrat to live under a Republican government. And it is possible for a Republican to live under a democratic government if you will practice this principle. It's as simple as that. When I was in England, my favorite candidate didn't always win the election, but we lived. When I, when I came to America, I have been under two elections. I have lived. As simple as that. Bible never fails. I think it's high time that Christians, we begin to really believe the Bible than to believe the popular thoughts of the day. Amen. The Bible says that if you, want, if you don't want to be afraid or unafraid of authority, do what is good. That's it. Because leaders are a terror to evil works, but not to good. And this also applies to police because they stand in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an office of authority. If you don't want to be afraid of the police, just do what is good. I do believe in the unlawful killings that are happening as a result of the police, you know, some of the police, but they, all of them are not evil. Just do what is good and you will not need to live in fear. Amen. So the leader of government is seen as God's minister for three purposes in verse 4. One, they bear the sword. And what the sword stands for? The sword stands to execute judgments. Number two, they are leaders that also do good. One thing you gotta know. And number three, they are an avenger to execute wrath on evil. So that's why God has established leaders. So in light of this, we should submit to them even if we don't like them. Why? Not because of wrath, but for our conscience sake. So Paul was telling them, submit to Emperor Nero. I don't think this was a nice message to preach to the Jews. Submit to Emperor Nero. Who hates Christians? Not for wrath, but because of conscience sake. Amen. And now, when you read the Bible further on, it's explicitly against tax evasion. That is why in this country, particularly our tax season, you know, our tax season is always from February to April. This year, it was, um, I think, extended to me. Amen. The scripture that you just texted me, I have it in the outline. Amen. Someone just texted me a scripture and it's in the outline. So all of us should file our taxes and then we should also pay our taxes honestly. <laughs> file it well and pay. All right. So the Bible is against tax evasion. So as Christians, it's our duty, our mandate, our responsibility as Christians first, number two, as citizens of a nation to file our taxes and pay our taxes correctly. Otherwise, when you are arrested for tax evasion, yes, we can pray for you, but maybe God will extend mercy to you in the jail. He won't extend mercy for you not to avoid jail sentence. Amen. So let's do what is right. And why do we do this? Because they are God's ministers. Just as you give the church offering because you respect that the pastors are God's ministers, respect the government of the day and pay your tax because they are also God's ministers. Amen. So now, in, in light of that, the Bible now admonishes us to render customs to whom customs is due. That's tax. Pay tax to who tax is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Fear here means reverence and respect. It's not talking about phobia. And honor unto whom honor is due. We need to learn how to honor people 
And who is who is the subject matter in this text? The government. I normally hear men of God normally quote this scripture. Ran down to customs, customs under it's talking about governments. Amen. So governments, governments. Respect governments. Amen. Respect the policeman. Another policeman. Anna your mayor. Anna the governor. Anna the cabinet ministers. Anna the president. It might not be your preference. You might have not voted for him. But if you're a Christian, it's your duty, your obligation to honor them. Amen. So the first obligation of a Christian is towards a government. A true Christian will never practice anarchy or rebellion. So look at this same author's stance on this in Acts chapter 23, verse 1 to 5. Acts chapter 23, verse 1 to 5. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Can you believe it? Someone is just talking. And you have to read the scriptures. Paul was right. If you read the preceding chapters, he was right. He had a right to defend himself. But a man called Ananias was a high priest said, strike his mouth. And the Bible lets us know that when Paul saw, heard this, he got very angry and he said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Verse 5, then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Amen. So a true Christian who has renewed his mind by the word of God will never practice anarchy or rebellion. Submission to authority of any kind may not be the order of the day we are currently living in. Okay, it's not a popular message to preach now, but it is the right and the Christian thing to do. It is our obligation, according to our chapter tonight, to be subject or submissive to Christians. Now, when, when I'm submissive, it doesn't mean I'm a doormat. When I'm submissive, it doesn't mean I will not disagree with you. I may disagree with your policies. I may disagree with your principles. I may disagree even with your style of leadership, but I will not be an insurrectionist. Are you understanding me? That I will attack you physically or disrespect the office in which you stand in. That's all we are talking about. Alright? If I don't like you, I pray four years to come, I'll vote you. I'll vote you out. Alright? There are there are peaceful ways, there are quote unquote respectful ways on which we can handle Things like that. Amen. It always doesn't have to be chaos if you if you don't disagree with someone. So we have to learn how to practice that. Amen. But at the same time, we have to honor them. Honor them. Today in this world, there are there, there is such a dishonor, disregard for leadership like I've never seen in my time. Parents and, and parents are disrespected. Uh, supervisors are disrespected. Uh, governments are disrespected, uh, Christian leaders are disrespected, and the like. And is it any surprise that the world is in it's in the shape in which it is it is in today? It's not surprising. Amen. Let's respect leadership. The second obligation is to love one another. That is a difficult scripture to practice if you are not renewing your mind. So you will be able to practice these obligations if you look at chapter twelve very carefully. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when your mind is renewed, you will have certain Christian ideals that you'll be able to practice. And one of them is that you will have an obligation to your government. Irrespective of whether it's my preference or not, I'll give honor to the government. And now it's talking about the obligation to love. So let's look at 
verses 8 to 10 for our second obligation. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness, shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Amen. So the Bible says that we shouldn't owe anything. Paul just talked about don't owe in taxes. But it's not just enough not to owe in taxes. Don't also owe in love. You know, one day I heard someone preach a very, um, uh, give a funny example when he was preaching on forgiveness. He said, when someone offends you, you are owing. When someone offends you, you are owing. You owe the person forgiveness. You owe the person love. I thought it was very funny. He said it in a very humorous way. He said, when somebody offends you, remember, you who, is, who has become the object of offense, you are owing. Always remember that. He has just put debits on your accounts. You owe. And you owe forgiveness. You owe love. I think some of you might even know him. Bishop Saki. he said it. Amen. And I, it was very funny. So, this scripture is difficult to practice if you are not renewing your mind daily by reading God's word. Amen. When we love, the Bible lets us know we have fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So, let's consider the words of Jesus on this one. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 14. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. So what Jesus is saying is that there are two great commandments. That's what Jesus is saying. So there's the first great this is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. So that means it, it, it carries the same status as the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love is the curtain rod on which all the commandments hang on. And that's how I picture it in my mind. You see, no matter how beautiful your drapes are, they won't hang by themselves without the assistance of a curtain rod. So you, you, you can practice every Christian virtue, but without love. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you are nothing. Amen. So let's practice love. Owe no man anything than to love. So don't owe in taxes, but don't also owe in love. And when you don't owe in love, it also means you forgive. Anytime you don't forgive, you are in debt. Forgive, let it go. The relationship might not come back to its former state. Practically speaking, but learn to forgive. That's it. Flush it out of your system and forgive. That's it. So that at least when you see the person, if you don't even owe the person anything, you owe him at least civility. Be civil and be nice. But don't hold grudge. There are some people who can even hold grudges even unto the grave. And there are some people who even hold grudges to dead people. They are dead and gone and you still have a grudge against them. That's, that's huge credits. There's so much interest. That the Bible is obligating us tonight that not only do we have to owe in finances, or in taxes for that matter. But let us not owe in love. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. See, anytime you are struggling to practice this scripture, just ask yourself, how much am I spending in renewing my mind with the word of God? That's the first question you should ask yourself. If it becomes difficult, it means you are spending less time doing that. If it's becoming easier and you are doing it off the cuff and by the heart, 
You are looking at someone who has totally renewed his mind by the word of God and truly is a transformed vessel. Amen. So now let's look at our final obligation for tonight in verses 11 to 14. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I'm sorry. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in reverie and darkness, not in lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its last. So we are encouraged by the writer not to be dark-hearted and not to be loud to sleep. Now is not the time to feel comfy. Okay? In this Christian space that we are in now, or this spiritual space we are in now, now is not the time to feel comfy. The Bible says, what is the person who is at ease in Zion? No, it's not the time. It's not the time to be at ease. We have to be truly awake and vigilant. Why? Because our day of salvation draws near. And the meaning of this word salvation here is deliverance. Our day of deliverance. What deliverance is it talking about? Is it a popular one? Come out. No. The, the, the deliverance that is talking about is that we will be delivered out of this corruptible body to a body of incorruptibility we are coming to that place where we will call the resurrection morning where we will be stand to be judged so paul is addressing us that now is not the time to sleep but you have to be awake you have to be vigilant you have to be sober why because our day of deliverance draws near it truly draws near all right, so now is not the time to be lazy. Now is not the time to relax. Woe unto the person who is at ease in Zion. In light of that, Paul is now admonishing us, the believers, that we should make a concerted effort to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, the word light in the phrase armor of light is personified. It's embodied in Christ. So what Paul is saying is that put on Christ. When you put on Christ, you will walk in sobriety, in vigilance, and you will be awake because you know that that day is coming. It will shock you how many Christians don't look forward to the day of the Lord. And they don't have that even in mind. Many Christians forget that one day we will be judged. Many Christians forget that. So they live as today is, is ephemeral, like this is it. And they say they are Christians. You are not a Christian. The Bible lets us know you are asleep. And people who are asleep will miss it. The Bible talks about the, the, the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Do you know why? Because the five were foolish because they were not vigilant. And they missed the day of opportunity. That was when the bridegroom came. And when the bridegroom came, even though they were virgins, they were lulled to sleep and they forgot to trim their lamps. That when push came to shovel, they had nothing. And by the time they went for uh, oil to light their to trim their lamps and come, it was too late. The door was locked against them. And Jesus gave this parable to say we should be watchful. Now it's not the time to sleep. So wake up. Don't let the devil blow your eyelids to sleep. Don't let him find you to sleep. Awaken your first love. Is there is a time that your zeal for the things of God has to be awakened? It's now. Making your first love. Don't sleep. Because if you sleep, you can miss your day of deliverance. Amen. You see, to the five, 
foolish and the five wise. See a difference. The five wise were in expectation. The five foolish, the bridegroom came like a thief. You see, when you are not expecting Jesus, his coming will become like a thief in the night. I should be in expectation. The Bible lets us know in Titus chapter 2 that when this grace appears unto us, it teaches us to live soberly, godly, righteously, deny ungodliness, deny unrighteousness, but it also helps us to live in expectation of the hope of the blessed hope of the coming of the Lord. The, Lord the, the coming of the Lord is known as the blessed hope. Oh, Christians, if, if we want to come to a place where we are in expectation, then we have to put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, it will be very difficult for us to be loved, to sleep, and uh, we will work in sobriety, vigilance, and we will always be awake. Amen. So, how do you put on Christ? If Paul is saying, in order for us to not miss the day approaching, we put on Christ by everything we have studied in the book of Romans, from chapters 1 to 11. Everything we have learned in Romans chapters 1 to 11, it's about putting on Christ. Have you realized that? So now we will have to practice it by renewing our mind that will become transformed. And that is what it means that we have put on Christ. When we put on Christ, it means that we are going to exhibit the characteristics of Christ and the fruit of real Christian living. Amen. So when we put on Christ, we walk properly. And the meaning of the word properly in the Greek means in a similar manner, befitting of decency. You are decent. You are mannerly. We are orderly. So we don't have to walk disorderly. We don't have to walk unmannerly. And we don't have to walk indecently. When we put on Christ, we will walk properly. We will be mannerly. We will be orderly. And we will do things in decency. And six things are listed not to do when we work properly. One, reverie. You know, reverie means wild parties. It's okay for a Christian to go to a party. I don't have anything wrong. I don't have anything against a Christian going to party. I go to parties myself. I like a good party. But there is something about going to wild parties where immorality, looseness, and things just breaks out. You know? Wild parties where you go, when you come back, you don't know your left from your right. You've been intoxicated with drugs. There are some parties when you go, you become a drug addict. Many celebrities have become drug addicts, not because of company. It's just because of the parties they went to. And they were taken to some of these parties by top execs, okay? It wasn't like, oh, it's the friend I have around the company, that's why. Sometimes it's just the parties. When they go, hard drugs, they take very hard drugs. How do you think Whitney Houston became a drug dealer? Do you think she became, uh, not, not even a drug dealer, how did she become a drug addict? Do you think she became a drug addict just because she married Bobby Brown? She became a drug addict because of the parties she got exposed to. High class parties by quote-unquote top powerful people who were giving her drugs. And then I think when she married Bobby Brown, I think it's, you know, intensified or amplified to another thing altogether. So there are certain parties, reveries. There are certain parties when you go there, you will just sing. And it's okay to go to a party. It's okay to enjoy a party. I enjoy a good party. I go to a party. I go to a party with my wife. But there are certain parties the Bible called them reveries. When you go there, you'll be involved in orgies and things. There are certain parties you go there, your, your marriage will even break down. I, I have a relative, had a great wedding. All that it took for his wedding to go down the drain was just go to a party. That was it. One party and he just committed adultery. Yeah, one party, that's it. 
So that's what I'm trying to explain. Reveries. There are some places you should never be. Amen. And when you are in such places, by the time you realize you are in another place altogether. By the time you come back from the party, you don't even know wh- which shoes should be on, on which feet. That's what I'm talking about. You'll be disheveled. Amen. Number two, drunkenness. How can you be drunk and then you will be an advocate of decency, manners, and orderliness? Yeah, does it even go together? Does it go together? Drunkenness with mannerliness, orderliness, and decency. It doesn't even go together. Number three, lewdness. Oh, we shouldn't be lewd. Number four, lust. And last year, don't just zero it in on sex. Last is talking about wild desires. Any desire that's not centered on God's will is last. Any desire that's not centered on God's will is last. Amen. Number five, strife. Shouldn't practice strife. People who, who Christians who, who, who claim that, oh, I've received my, the Lord as, as my Lord and personal Savior, and they are walking in strife, let me tell you that you'll be asleep. That's why. Because if you are really not sleeping and if you are awake and you are vigilant and sober, one of the things you will never be involved in is strife. Number six, envy. Envy. So the Bible lets us know. It is high time to awake out of sleep. So anybody who is envious probably must be sleeping. He hasn't awoken up. Because the day you awake out of sleep, you also awake out of envy because you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And all that matters is focus on putting on Christ. And you wouldn't even have to worry about these six. So instead of saying things like, I don't want to be envious, I, I don't want to be a drunkard, change your confession to, I want to put on Christ. Is if you want to really stop sin, don't really focus on the sin. Whatever you might be struggling with, focus on I want to put on Christ. Just focus. I want to put on Christ. Yeah, I know. I'm a sinner. I'm struggling with this, but I want to put on. And when you put on Christ with time, all these things will drop off automatically because you've put on Christ. You know, when light and darkness meets, light always has to overcome. So just put on Christ. When you put on Christ, the armor of light, it will drive away darkness. John 1, 5. Darkness and light met. And darkness could not comprehend light. Light always wins when it comes into contact with darkness. So if you want to deal with darkness in your life, don't focus on darkness. Focus on light. And when you focus on light, it will dissipate away darkness in your life. Amen. So let's change our confession to, I want to put on Christ. Now, Paul restates verse 12 in verse 14, that we should put on Christ. See, in verse 12, he called it the armor of light, but in verse 14, he's just saying plainly, let's put on Christ. Because when we put on Christ, we shall not make room or provision to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen. So as we can see, the teaching of doctrine should really reflect in our lives as Christians. It should modify our behavior. If a, if a, if a New Testament teacher or grace teacher is here, I'm sure he, will, he or she might be offended because they say that gospel is not behavior modification. I understand what they are trying to say when they say that, but I also don't understand why they use that word. That gospel has to modify your behavior. That's the reality. Amen. So God bless you guys. I'm out of time before I become more controversial. Questions or contributions? Okay, so uh, I had a question. Uh, um, just to maybe clarify, uh, I, I think, so I, I understand the concept, but maybe can you give me a picture of maybe what that looks like? Uh, what does it mean to be dull-hearted? Like when the Bible says dull-hearted, what is that really? What is what is dull? 
what is dull part? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think of dull hearted? I think of a blade that can't cut. This dull blade. That's the picture I get in my head. Oh, okay. But I, I don't understand. I, I, I think I get the concept, but I don't know why it uses the word dull hearted. Oh, okay. So, trying to get a better understanding. Okay. Instead of answering this, why don't I throw this to the floor? Does anybody have an idea why the Bible used the word dull-hearted? See, dull-hearted is often referring to your heart. When the Bible says your heart is dull-hearted, it means your heart is not perceptive to the things of God. It's dull. But that's why it uses the term dull-hearted. Amen. Who else would like to add something to that? I want to hear your views on that. So, Pastor Jessica thinks about a blade that can cut. So, when the Bible uses the term dark hearted, what does it mean? My first thought would be uh, unable to understand. Amen. Unable to understand. It, okay, so if somebody is saved, right? How would that person not be able to understand if now the spirit is the one they're teaching? Why wouldn't that person understand? Okay. The, the person will not understand because he has to also make a vested um, interest in fellowshipping of the Holy Spirit. That's why. You have to make a vested interest in the Holy Spirit and build relationship. That's why when, you know, in Romans chapter 12, when we did that, we said that um, save is one thing. But you have to continuously tread and walk on the road of discipleship. That's also another, you know. So just being saved is first base. You've received the Lord Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior. That's first base. But now, we are talking about now, your lifestyle has to mirror that of Christ. That doesn't happen at confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing with your heart that you have experienced negative fear. That's why Paul, you know, chapters 12 to chapter 16, in my opinion, makes the gospel very complete. Because it could have just stopped at theology. But Paul is also letting us understand what theology plays in the life of a believer. What doctrine plays in the life of a believer. It modify the believer's behavior that of a truth, he will begin to act out like Christ, behave like Christ, walk like Christ, give birth to the fruit of the Spirit. So it's, it's, it's a vested interest that one has to put in to come to that place where you were talking about. Amen. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, so dull-heartedness is a willful act then because you allow yourself... Uh, you're you're not allowing yourself to um, pursue the things of God in order to continue to understand or have understanding. Rather, it's kind of like a verb. Yes. Yes. It's okay. All right. We have three more minutes on the clock. All right, can two people tell me what they have learned today? What ministered to you? What touched your hearts? What was the Holy Spirit speaking to you through this teaching today? Two people. Can we do that in two minutes and then we close? 
what you took home. I'm sorry, I can't hear you at all. Your voice is very distant. Oh, okay. Obligations. Your voice is very distant. I can't. I I heard the word obligations, but I didn't hear any other thing. Yes, I can. I can now. Okay. So, I, the key word for me was obligations, like obligations as a Christian and renewing of your mind. Okay. So, the key word for here here was obligations. Let me ask this question. What's the meaning of the word obligation? Something that you have to do. Right, something that you have to do. So we have to be submissive to governments. We have to love. We have to live rights for God. It's an obligation. Amen. Okay, Pastor Robert, you are unmuted yourself, so talk. Father, we thank you for what we've heard tonight. We thank you that uh, we have learned from your scriptures that we have an obligation. Not by might, not by power. We humbly say that, O oh Lord, lead us by your spirits to fulfill our rightful obligations as Christians indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you guys.